go to Psalm 69. We're going to continue our Bible study here. <laughs> you may you may want to wait until you clear the building before you start saying such things like that. All right. So we've come to Psalm 69. So our summary statement, Psalm 69 laments David's suffering and rejection and prays for his deliverance. I'll go over that one more time. Psalm 69 laments David's suffering and rejection and prays for his deliverance. Simple outline for the psalm would be in two parts, verses 1 to 12, crisis and condition of suffering, verses 13 to 36, expectation of deliverance. I'll go over that one more time. Verses 1 to 12, crisis and condition of suffering. Verses 13 to 36, expectation of deliverance. All right, so let's go to our observations for Psalm 69. The psalm was written by David. Uh, as we see, the superscription ascribes it to him, to the chief musician upon Shoshanim, a psalm of David. So it's directed to the chief musician or to the choir master. Um, the term Shoshanim uh, means lilies or some lily-like flower is what the word literally means. It's uncertain of what the indication is here for the heading. Um, it's probably either a reference to an instrument, but more likely it's probably a reference to some sort of tune that the psalm would be sung to. Uh, psalm 45 is the only other occurrence of this term in the psalm. There's no occasion that is given in the heading or in the text of the psalm, uh, other than obviously the... Um, crisis of, of suffering and affliction and persecution that he's enduring, but as far as the setting of that, we don't know. Now, Psalm 69 is a messianic psalm, and there are several quotations and allusions or references to Psalm 69 in the New Testament. In fact, it has the second highest number of quotes or references, um, only coming behind Psalm 22 in that regard in the New Testament. And there are direct quotations in reference to Psalm 69 that apply to four particular events that are connected with Jesus as the Messiah. So those are the cleansing of the temple, the crucifixion, the end for Judas Iscariot, and the blinding and hardening of Israel because of their rejection of Jesus of Nazareth as the Davidic Messiah. Now I'm going to I'll 
draw attention to those as we go through the text, but I'll just give that to you one more time. We have direct quotations in the New Testament in reference to this psalm pertaining to four particular events in connection with Jesus the Messiah. So they are the cleansing of the temple, Jesus' crucifixion, the ending for Judas Iscariot, and the blinding and hardening of Israel because of their rejection of Jesus of Nazareth as the Davidic Messiah. Now, obviously then that makes this psalm a messianic psalm. As far as its overall form and structure, we would also categorize it as a lament psalm. It has all of the conventions of a lament. So you have a direct address call to God um, for deliverance in verses 1 to 3. You have a crisis complaint in verses 4 to 12. You have petitions for deliverance and also imprecations or prayers for judgment in verses 13 to 29. You have an expression of confidence and a commitment to praise in verses 30 to 36. So again, all of those standard conventions of a lament um, we do see in the structure of Psalm 69. Um, It's also worth noting that this psalm is a lament, and it is a lament that also has penitential elements. And so many of the laments that we encounter in the Psalms are the laments of a righteous sufferer. There are a few laments that we encounter in the Psalms that have penitential elements, that there's some confession of sin, there's some acknowledgement that the suffering has come upon for because of sin in some way. And so this um, this uh, lament actually has both, um, right, the suffering of a righteous sufferer and the suffering for sin um, in, this, in this lament, making it somewhat unique but not entirely unprecedented. Being it, the fact that it is a Messianic psalm also means that it has prophetic predictive elements. So uh, especially the four events that we referenced above in connection with Jesus um, and his ministry and, and crucifixion, Um, and the results of that. Uh, But there's also a prophetic predictive element that comes at the end of the psalm where it is a prediction of the restoration of Israel and Zion resulting in universal praise. And we see that verses 34 to 36 at the end. Now, Psalm 69 is a part of the David psalm group in book two of the Psalms. And we are coming close to the end of book two um, in the Psalms, but we're not there quite yet. Um, But it still is a part of this David group at the end. And so it has obvious connections with the whole David group beginning in Psalm 51 and running through Psalm 68 up to this point. It also has connections with the Korahite group of Psalms, Psalms 42 to 49, um, that we looked at previously. It also has connections with the Asaphite Psalm, that we have in Psalm 50 that comes between these two collections in book number two. However, when we look at Psalm 69, we realize that it has the strongest connections with Psalm 22. And those connections, there are so many of them. Um, I started out and I thought, I'm going to list all of these connections. Really, if you would just take the time to read Psalm 22 and read Psalm 69, and you're, you're going to see that they almost beat by beat are paralleling each other as they work from 
beginning to end. There are a few things in Psalm 22 that's not in Psalm 69, um, but aside from that, there are very, very strong connections between these two psalms, and obviously these are parallel psalms. So just to, just to hit some of those high points that would be um, obvious, Psalm 22 has the abandonment theme that we see here in Psalm 69, um, the um, uh, motif of being forsaken or estranged from family and friends. And when you look at some of these laments, that's that's not entirely common. It does come up at times, um, but being forsaken or estranged from family and friends, being surrounded by enemies, and that is much more common. Uh, there's death and resurrection imagery, and also the deliverance in the lament means deliverance for Israel and praise from all the earth. You see all those things in Psalm 22 and Psalm 69. So that's just some of the thematic connections there. Also, Psalm 68 shares a somewhat unique connection with Psalm 38. Psalm 69, rather, connects with Psalm 38. Both of those psalms are lament psalms that features a paradoxical righteous sufferer and penitential sufferer. So in both of, the, both of these psalms, Psalm 38 and Psalm 69, we have a lament where the, the sufferer is a righteous sufferer. In other words, he's suffering innocently. Um, and then also he's suffering for sins. And that occurs in Psalm 38 here and, and in Psalm 69. So that's a, a somewhat unique connection that binds those two together. All right, so the, the poetic features of Psalm 69 is, is not a lot in, in terms of like if you compare Psalm 69 and Psalm 22, you're going to find a lot more a lot more poetic features in Psalm 22 than you do in Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is pretty straightforward. Um, there's not a lot of uh, a lot of vivid imagery and that sort of thing. Uh, there is some imagery in the psalm, like uh, the use of drowning imagery um, that's used in a couple places in the psalm. Drowning imagery is obviously a picture of judgment and death. So the the chaotic and violent overflowing waters are like you know, judgment that is that is flowing over and overtaking someone, uh, being covered over, drowning in the in the depths of the sea. Obviously, uh, a pretty obvious imagery of death, and it moves from this drowning imagery in the earlier part of the psalm to being lifted up, being rescued, being saved um, by the end of the psalm. And you also have a number of minor statements that have some poetic effect to them. Um, like the mention of the number of his enemies being more than the hairs of his head. Some things, you have some things like that um, within the psalm. The psalm also features that tension of the righteous sufferer um, and also seeming to suffer for sin and being smitten by God as well as being smitten by enemies. All right, so let's go to our walkthrough. This is another long psalm, Psalm 68 had 35 verses. This one has 36. Um, obviously, the longer psalms are a little more difficult to deal with in, in just a single setting like this, but uh, we've been managing to get through them. So um, I'm going to go ahead and read through this psalm, and we'll just sort of walk through. Again, not able to get into the real uh, minute details, but um, going through it and, and trying to stick to the uh, main, main part of it. So Psalm 69. Save me, O God. For the waters are come in unto my soul. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I am come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. 
I am weary of my crying. My throat is dried. Mine eyes fail while I wait for my God. They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies wrongfully, are mighty. Then I restored that which I took not away. O God, thou knowest my foolishness, and my sins are not hid from thee. Let not them that wait on thee, O Lord of hosts, be ashamed for my sake. Let not those that seek thee be confounded for my sake, O God of Israel. Because for thy sake I have borne reproach, shame hath covered my face. I am become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that was to my reproach. I made sackcloth also my garment, and I became a proverb to them. They that sit in the gate speak against me, and I was the song of the drunkards. But as for me, my prayer is unto thee, O Lord, in an acceptable time. O God, in the multitude of thy mercy, hear me in the truth of thy salvation. Deliver me out of the mire, and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from them that hate me, and out of the deep waters. Let not the water flood overflow me, neither let the deep swallow me up, and let not the pit shut her mouth upon me. Hear me, O Lord, for thy loving kindness is good. Turn unto me according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, and hide not thy face from thy servant, for I am in trouble. Hear me speedily. Draw nigh unto my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of mine enemies. Thou hast known my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. Mine adversaries are all before thee. Reproach hath broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness, and I looked for some to take pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Their table become, Let their table become a snare before them, and that which should have been for their welfare, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened that they see not, and make their loins continually to shake. Pour out thine indignation upon them, and let thy wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their habitation be desolate, and let none dwell in their tents. For, thy, for they persecute him whom thou hast smitten, and they talk to the grief of those whom thou hast wounded. Add iniquity unto their iniquity, and let them not come into thy righteousness. And let them be blotted out of the book of the living, and not be written with the righteous. I am poor and sorrowful. Let thy salvation, O God, set me up on high. I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or bullock that hath horns and hoofs. The humble shall see this and be glad, and your heart shall live that seek God. For the Lord heareth the poor and despiseth not his prisoners. Let the heaven and earth praise him, the seas, and everything that moveth therein. For God will save Zion and will build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and have it in possession." The seed also of his servants shall inherit it, and they that love his name shall dwell therein. All right, so verses 1 to 3 open up this psalm. This is where we have the direct cry to God for rescue. Um, Save me, O God. Um, There are two images that are used here in these opening verses. One is this image of drowning. The waters come into my soul. I'm sinking in the deep mire. There's no standing. I'm in the deep water. The flood's overflowing me. 
So we have this drowning imagery that is used, which has been, um, we've seen before in the Psalms, like Psalm 18 and verse 16, uh, Psalm 29 and verse number three, Psalm 32 and verse number six, Psalm 42 and verse seven, Psalm 46 and verse three. Obviously, this drowning imagery is an imagery of death, and it becomes more pronounced actually a little later in this psalm than from this opening. But then we also have a second image, and that is the image that obviously would result from drowning, and that image is the, of the spent sufferer. So the person that maybe is is fighting and is, is treading the water. And so we, we get this image that his voice is gone and his throat is dry because he's been repeatedly calling out without any answer um, for his help and for his salvation, um, which we can see also echoed in Psalm 22 and verse number 15. Even speaking of his eyes failing, they, they have... Um, he's been searching, like searching the horizons and looking out and looking for that deliverance to come, looking for that one um, to rescue him, and but he has not come. And so he is also he's also failing and is, has become um, weak in his um, cries for help. And now this obviously mirrors the opening of Psalm 20, 22 very, very closely. Um, it expresses this abandonment theme that is reinforced throughout this psalm. And the picture we get immediately is that this sufferer, this, this psalmist, which is David as the writer, he is suffering alone without anyone to help him. Uh, and that, again, is reinforced throughout the psalm. So then when we get to verses 4 to 8, we see the multiplied enemies, like the enemies just being becoming more and more numerous surrounding him. So the problem for the lone sufferer is made worse by the multiplication of enemies, like we see there in verse number four, that they hate him without a cause. Again, this um, is what depicts to us the righteous sufferer. He's, he's suffering um, innocently, as it were, like we've seen in Psalm 25 and verse 7 and verse 19, and Psalm 38, verses 19 and 20. So the righteous sufferer is... is, is um, uh, depicted here. And in verse number four, this verse is actually quoted by Jesus in John chapter 15 and verse number 25 as being fulfilled by the unjust hatred of the Messiah by those he had done mighty works among. So he's hated by his own people that he came to. Of course, he did mighty works. Um, he proclaimed um, God and his salvation, the gospel to them. He also convicted them of their sin. And he says that they hated him um, without a cause, fulfilling uh, Psalm 69 and verse number four. And then we come to verse five, and this is where we see that tension come in that we talked about, like is what is in Psalm number 38. Thou knowest my foolishness and my sins are not hid from thee. So here we have a confession of sin. So a righteous sufferer is established in verse four. And then there's a confession of sin in verse five. So that, and later reference to being smitten by God, which again uh, goes right along with Psalm number, Psalm number 38. Um, this word for foolishness, in fact, is used in Psalm 38 and verse number five. So it's paralleling this lament. There's a blending here of the righteous sufferer and the penitential sufferer. And we have this confession of sin in verse 5 that goes right along with the confession of sin like we saw in verse number 51 and would say the very same things about um, such a confession being on the lips of the Messiah. So David's prayer that his failure, and we see this coming out in verse 6, 
David's praying that his failure would not bring shame on God's covenant people. And in other words, that God's covenant would not fail, though David has failed. And this also indicates that his deliverance means deliverance for others as well. So we see early in this psalm that David um, is a righteous sufferer, but he's also uh, a penitential sufferer, and he's also a representative figure that there is deliverance of others based upon his own deliverance. So his concerns um, are wider than even just his own life. He says that he has been reproached and scorned for God's sake. And again, this echoes Psalm 22 and verse number 6. So the righteous sufferer is bearing reproach that is aimed at God. So those that are opposing God are heaping scorn and reproach upon um, the psalmist here, again, which would echo um, things like Psalm 2, verses 1 to 3, about how um, that uh, men of the earth and the rulers and, and such and the nations have risen up against God and against his anointed. And furthermore, he is rejected by his own. And we see that in verse number 8, his brethren and his mother's children He's been rejected and alienated from. So the shame and the humiliation of his suffering has separated him from his family and his friends. And of course, this is something that we see fulfilled in the life of Jesus. This verse isn't quoted in reference to that, but in places like John chapter 1 and verse number 11, he came unto his own and his own received him not. Of course, this was um, prophesied in Isaiah 52 and 53, as well as other places. And, then, and in other instances, like Mark chapter 3 and verse 21, where his um, uh, his family comes to, you know, to get him and thinks that he's gone mad, essentially. So we see these things fulfilled in the life of Jesus, even at, even at times when there's not a direct quote or citation of this psalm um, surrounding the event in the New Testament. As we get to verses 9 to 12 now, we begin to see here the public scorn, the open shame um, that he is enduring. And the first part of this verse in verse number 9 is actually quoted in John chapter 2 and verse number 17, and it's quoted in reference to the cleansing of the temple. The second part of verse number 9 is quoted in Romans chapter 15 and verse number 3, and there Paul quotes it, in reference to the sufferings of Jesus as an example of suffering because he refused to please only himself. So this this verse is obviously applied to Jesus Christ and his suffering. As we go on reading through the verse, we see more of the zeal of of the house coming out, of the weeping, the, the fasting, the sackcloth, and all of those things. And he says the result of that, was the suffering of scorn and mockery. So he becomes a proverb, or in other words, he becomes a saying of mockery. He was spoken against in the gates. In other words, people of authority and power and people of of high places um, spoke against him. He was slandered and and falsely accused, um, perhaps even of crimes. And then further, he says at the end of verse number 12, that he was the comic song of drunkards. Like they... Those that um, those that are are drunk with uh, wine and and strong drink and and singing their uh, singing their little songs and little 
rhymes making fun of of someone he said, well that well, he became the subject of such scorn and mockery verses 13 to 15 is where we see the uh, perhaps the heightening of this drowning imagery that he is in danger of the grave so he's praying to god first of all for um, covenant mercy and and the word chesed is used here as well as a little later i think in verse number 16 but the word chesed is, is used here as he's praying to God for covenant mercy. In other words, he, he's praying on the basis of um, God's loyalty to his own words. And we also see chesed here joined to emet um, here. This word is translated truth. Um, in the multitude of thy mercy, which is chesed, hear me. And in the emet, truth of thy salvation. Um, and oftentimes when we see that mercy and truth that is joined together. Very, very strong um, covenantal reference, of course, the truth, the amet um, of God refers to his faithfulness, that, that, that he can be trusted, he can be relied upon, and that's the basis of this appeal. And then verse 14 begins renewing this drowning imagery, being um, sunken into the mire and being um, taken down into deep waters and overflowed in verse number 15, being swallowed up and the pit shutting her mouth upon me. So swallowed up in the pit is obviously very much um, death imagery reference to the grave. Uh, we've seen a similar reference in Psalm 55 and verse 23. Um, this is a prayer for salvation to be saved from death, to be saved from the grave. In other words, we, we see the, um, the, the level or the intensity, the extremity of the suffering that he is under. Verses 16 to 19 then make this appeal again to God's covenant mercy. God's face obviously refers to his favor, to his attention, um, looking, in other words, um, again, coupled with covenant mercy, the idea would be um, like the the ironic blessing, you know, God's face shine upon the, you know, that God God's face would would look upon those that have taken refuge in Him, those who have put their trust in Him, those who are um, joined to Him by covenant promise, and so God beholding one like that, then he's going to move on their behalf. He's going to move for their deliverance. He's going to rise up and he's going to take down um, the enemies and deliver his own. So this also shows us that the need is urgent. The, the affliction is severe and the threat of death is very near to him. And so he's pleading for redemption here, lest his enemies overcome him. In other words, if and in a way, you can see how that God's name and God's character is at stake. If, if God um, hides his face and permits the enemies to overcome his anointed, then God's name and God's character um, would be defamed. Now, as we get to verses 20 to 29, this is where we get to the imprecatory prayers. And remember, we've talked about imprecatory prayers along the way as we encounter them in a number of places. And a lot of times they cause people a lot of trouble um, how to understand them. And, and sometimes um, I've read some commentators that are going to all sorts of links trying to say, well, how can we pray um, these prayers kind of thing? Understand that imprecatory prayers 
are covenantal prayers, and they are prayers that are calling for damnation. All right, so this is not this is not a prayer that simply um, you know getting even with with you know this this guy at work or this neighbor or someone that's causing me trouble. The, these are prayers of damnation. These are prayers of condemnation upon those who reject God and those who persecute his anointed and his people. So there's an, there's an appeal to God, um, verses 20 and 21, there's an appeal to God um, as, as the sort of sufferer that God saves. He's, he's the one with a broken heart. He is the one that is full of heaviness in his sufferings. He's just looking for pity and he's looking for comfort, but not finding it. <clears throat> Excuse me. So he's looking out, but he can't find any to give him that sort of comfort or that sort of help. Now, the Psalms have told us in places like Psalm 34 and verse 18, and even Psalm 51 and verse 17, which is David's confession, that God is near to the brokenhearted. In other words, these are the, these are the type of sufferers that God saves and that God delights to save. He mentions being given gall for meat and vinegar to drink. Now, obviously, this is sort of like adding insult to injury. Um, so he's suffering at the hands of his enemies. He's looking for comfort and he's looking for pity. And instead of that, he's receiving gall and vinegar. So you remember um, when Jesus talked about, um, you, you know, no, no father was going to give his, his kid that needs a fish to eat. He's not going to give him a serpent. You know, he's not going to give him a stone instead of bread. He's not going to give them something that will hurt them. Um, when they are in need. And he said, you know, even those that are evil know how to give good gifts. Well, this is the giving of an evil gift. So he's in need. He's looking for pity. He's looking for comfort, but he can't find it. Instead, he gets gall and vinegar. Gall um, refers to a poisonous herb, um, and vinegar is a reference to sour wine, um, both of those not being um, good, not, not necessarily going to... Um, quench thirst, and doing much damage if eaten. However, this verse is also directly referred to in John chapter 19, verses 28 and 30, as fulfilled by Jesus in his crucifixion when he was um, offered um, vinegar that was mixed with gall or the sour wine that was mixed with um, this in, 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 on, the, on the cross. Um. Then we come to verses 22 to 23 and, is, and really start seeing these imprecations begin to come out. These are the prayers that are the calls for judgment. Pour out thine indignation and wrathful anger. So a call for indignation and wrathful anger. And this is actually, um, these verses, let's see, I've got this in the, uh, I've got this in the wrong place. Uh, all right, lost my place. Oh, okay, here we are. Um, sorry, the, I got I got this a little bit ahead of myself. I was looking at verses 22 and 23, actually, um, where beginning to pray that their table, those that are persecuting him, that their table would become a snare and, and their eyes be darkened and all that sort of thing. Now, these verses here are actually quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 11 and verses 9 to 10, and he quotes them in direct reference to the temporary setting aside of Israel 
through blindness and hardening because of their rejection of the Messiah. In other words, Paul shows us that the Messiah is praying for the blinding of the people of Israel that have rejected and killed him. Now, this is also prophesied in places like Isaiah chapter 6, verses 8 to 13, when God said, I'm sending you to a people um, to so that they will not see, so that they will not hear, and I'm going to bring them to complete desolation. That's what God says um, there at the end of Isaiah chapter number 6. And so here we actually see um, the Messiah praying for um, these judgments to come upon them, that they be set aside. And then again, it's why Paul spoke about what was going on. Why, why were the Jews rejecting? Why were the Gentiles believing and receiving Jesus Christ? And the Jews are rejecting him by and large. Um, they are in unbelief. And Paul said, uh, you, you know, this is why. This is why. They're happening according to what has been prophesied. They have rejected their Messiah, and so they are enduring judgment. They're enduring a hardness, and they're enduring a blinding, and that's only going to be temporary. It's only going to be until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled, as Paul spoke about. And we studied uh, Romans chapters 9 to 11, so we're not going to go through all that again. Um, the praying for indignation and wrathful anger again, shows us that these are prayers for damning, condemning judgment upon his enemies. These are not um, just prayers of, of getting even. Th these are prayers calling for uh, a fin finality of judgment upon them. Verse 25 speaks of the extent of judgment as making Israel a desolation. Um, and this is alluded to in places like Matthew chapter 23 and verse 28. Uh, Luke chapter 13 and verse 35, when Jesus spoke about that, that Israel's house was left desolate. Now, this is also prophesied in other places. It, it occurs in a number of places in Isaiah, as well as some of the other prophecies that they will be desolated. They will made a desolation because of their rejection of the Messiah. But this verse, verse 25, is also directly quoted in relation to the judgment on Judas in Acts chapter 1. Um, and I think verse number uh, 20, some, somewhere around about there. So the first part of this um, verse is quoted in reference to Judas. And the second part of the quotation that's actually in Acts comes from Psalm 109 and verse number 8, where these two are put together. So in other words, Judas in, in many ways is a figure of unbelieving and rebellious, disobedient, Messiah-rejecting Israel. And he is... Judge. This judgment comes upon him um, just as it does upon that generation that rejected him. Um, we get then to verse 26, and he gives the reason, the reason for these imprecatory prayers. And that's because they're persecuting him whom thou hast smitten. They are persecuting God's anointed, but God's anointed whom God has smitten and wounded. Uh, obviously, the same word is used in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse number 4, speaking about the suffering servant of Yahweh being smitten of God and afflicted. Verses 27 to 28 further describe the judgments that are prayed for. And this adding iniquity unto their iniquity means holding them accountable, holding them responsible for their sin, not not pardoning their sin, not forgiving their sin, holding them accountable for their iniquity, which means, again, judgment. He speaks of the blotting out of the, of the book of the living. Erasure from the book of the living means 
their disinheritance. He's, he's saying that they are going to be cut off from their inheritance. Though they are the children of Abraham, they are going to be disinherited and cut off from the land of the living. We've seen similar references in uh, Psalm number 9 and verse 5, as well as Psalm 52 and verse 5. And they will not enjoy their, their reward or the reward alongside the righteous. God's anointed is then, um, in uh, verse number 29, is then identified as poor and sorrowful. And we've seen this in Psalm 22, verse 24, Psalm 25, verse 26, Psalm 34 and verse 6, Psalm 40 and verse 17. Um, Stricken with grief, poor and stricken with grief. Of course, this um, has been... Uh, fulfilled the incarnation and the humiliation of Christ in the flesh. The end of this verse set me up on high, being set on high or being lifted high speaks obviously of being set to safety, but it's also an image that resolves the drowning imagery. So in the drowning imagery, everything was, was moving downward. He's being covered over by the waters. He's stuck in deep mire in which he can't get any sort of a standing um, in that mire. He's in danger of, of going all the way down into the pit and the pit closing, as it were, its mouth on him. It's another place where the, the grave is imaged like some great monster at the bottom of the sea that's going to swallow him up if he keeps on going down into the deep waters. And so against all of that sort of imagery, we now get the imagery that resolves that Um, And that's being lifted up and being set up on high. So he's being rescued, as it were, out of the waters. And of course, just as the drowning imagery gives us the imagery of death, so this lifting up imagery gives us the imagery of resurrection. Verses 30 to 33 then give us praise and thanksgiving. And so we have a turn, um, praise and thanksgiving. So there's a commitment to praise um, and thanksgiving. And this is, this is obviously for the deliverance that is experienced. And such praise and thanksgiving from the righteous, as you'll notice this in verse 31, such praise and thanksgiving from the righteous that the Lord has delivered is better than old covenant sacrifices. It's better than the blood of bulls and goats and what have you being shed. What is these things are are commonly together. So to, we can compare this with Psalm fifty, the the Psalm of Asaph, verses nine to fifteen. Um, we can also compare it with Psalm fifty one, um, the Psalm of David, the great penitential Psalm of David, verses fourteen to seventeen. And we can also see this show up in places like Hebrews chapter thirteen and verse number fifteen. In other words, these are new covenant sacrifices that are acceptable to God and that are better in His sight than the blood of bulls and goats being shed. What is that? That is the praise and the thanksgiving of his people whom he has redeemed. Now the lowly, we are told, will see God's salvation and they will rejoice. And we've noted that that has been something of a a motif that has emerged in uh, particularly in these David Psalms, Psalm 52 and verse 6, Psalm 59 and verse 10. But we also see some reference in in the Korite Psalms of of seeing this deliverance and and seeing it, experiencing it, and it being the cause of joy and rejoicing. And what he says here 
um, about them is that they will, the heart shall live or revive. And speaking of the preservation of life. And the poor and the prisoners that are mentioned uh, in verse 33 represent those who trust in him, those who will be delivered, those who will be set free, as it were. And verses 34 to 36 then in this psalm, and it gives us a conclusion where we see universal praise. So the heaven and the earth are praising him, the seas, everything that moving. We have universal praise of God for this great deliverance that has been affected. And again, this echoes what we saw in Psalm 22 in verses 27 to 28. And then we're told in verses 35 and 36 in particular that Zion will be saved. The people of Judah and Israel will have their inheritance. They will possess the land promised to Abraham and they will dwell there forever when this deliverance is effected. So um, we've seen similar references, Psalm 9 verse 11, uh, Psalm 20 and verse number 5. All right. Let's move on to interpretation. So um, try to keep this um, pretty simple. Um, so just to briefly mention, Psalm 69 teaches what many lament psalms teach. And we've drawn attention to, to a number of these things as we've gone along. It's obviously the sovereignty of God over circumstances and enemies. And, and the very nature of, of the lament um, shows us that sovereignty of God. It's not, it's not the enemies and their ingenuity and their false accusations that are going to determine what happens to God's anointed. It's God's sovereignty. That's, that's why God is being prayed to. That's why God is being asked for deliverance at, at his appointed time as it comes in this psalm. Things like the immutability of God is seen in these type of lament psalms. So the psalmist is experiencing changing circumstances. He's experiencing differences and going from danger to um, deliverance, but God doesn't change. God is, is ever the same. Though, In other words, the changing circumstances doesn't change or alter who he is. And it, it is who he is that is the basis of the prayer in, and the hope of deliverance in these laments. We also see things like the faithfulness of God. So God's covenant is relied upon. God has made promises. Even though we see this sufferer who, who appears at least for a time to be abandoned, to be forsaken, and to be all alone, nevertheless relying on God and his promises that he's not going to ultimately be forsaken and abandoned, that God is going to deliver him at his appointed time. So we see all of those kind of things in a lament psalm, and we certainly see them here in Psalm 69 as well. But mostly um, Psalm 69, obviously being a messianic psalm, has a very strong message of messianic hope. And it is obviously seen in the deliverance of the righteous sufferer who suffers for sin, meaning his deliverance, meaning the restoration of Israel and the universal praise of God. So the New Testament references that we talked about obviously interpret this psalm as prophecy of the Messiah fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But I want us to consider the sketch of the psalmist who is praying this prayer of lament and imprecation. In other words, let's look at Psalm 69 to see what it says about this person. And again, this person is David. But we know that it, that it is David as a figure representing 
the Christ, the greater David. So what does it say about the person praying this lament? Well, he is a righteous sufferer, according to verse number four. But he's also a sin bearer, according to verse number five. He is rejected by his own, according to verse eight. And he receives the reproaches that are aimed at God falling upon him, verses seven and nine. He is God's servant, verse number 17. He suffers public scorn and mockery, verses 19 to 20. He is smitten by God, verse number 26. He is poor and he is sorrowful, verse number 29. His deliverance means deliverance for lowly prisoners, verses 32 to 33. His deliverance leads to the universal praise of God in verse number 34. Zion and the inheritance of Israel promised to Abraham are at stake in his deliverance. And his deliverance means the securing of those possessions, verses 35 to 36. So obviously, this is not just David in this psalm. Obviously, David is a figure, and this is obviously the Messiah in this psalm, just as the New Testament assures us that it is. Now, this psalm, along with Psalms 22 and Psalm 38, these other laments that are also Messianic psalms, these psalms echo the prophecy, like in Isaiah 52 and 53, that speak of that suffering and rejected servant who's going to be smitten by God, bearing the iniquities of his people and making satisfaction with God for them. And also, as you get to the end of Isaiah 53, what do you find out? He secures the inheritance. They are are preserved. They are prolonged um, because he secures the inheritance through suffering on their behalf. All right, application have two of these. Number one, understanding Psalm 69 helps us understand the hope that we have in Jesus' suffering death and in his resurrection. So again, um, we see the stakes in a psalm like this, that it's much, it's much higher than just this psalm writer's own life that is at stake. And number two, Understanding Psalm 69 helps us understand that to be partaker with Christ means that suffering comes before glory. And this is something that we see in the, in the Psalms. We've had, especially Psalm 68, a great psalm of victory and triumph. And very soon, and in this case, the very next psalm put with it, is a psalm of suffering. And we've seen that as we've been going throughout the psalms, always reminding us that suffering comes before glory. And being a partaker with Jesus Christ means that suffering comes before glory. But the glory that comes afterward is indeed everlasting.